This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut, and today we're talking about attention. Really, this conversation was intended to be about big ideas. At least that's how it was billed as part of the Crosscut Festival. But to be honest, it ended up a little all over the place, which isn't a bad thing, I think, and maybe speaks to the difficulties of paying attention to any one thing for all that long right now. Our guest, Ezra Klein, is someone who pays attention for a living. As the host of the podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, and a columnist at the New York Times, he's got to decide what to focus his attention on, how long to focus it, and when to move on. In case you don't know him, Ezra Klein first started gaining attention for his journalism almost 20 years ago as one of the earliest political bloggers. Eventually, and we're rocketing ahead here, he went on to co-found the explainer-heavy news and opinion site Vox and develop his podcast, which he took over to the New York Times in November of 2020. Ezra's journalism is expansive. He delves into topics as divergent as white nationalism, science fiction, abortion rights, and crypto. But he's no dilettante. Ezra comes to each of these topics deeply researched and with well-developed ideas and questions. And when he really wants to understand something, whether that's crypto or the war in Ukraine, he goes all in and takes his listeners with him. In this conversation, which was led by me and took place on May 5th, Ezra discusses some of the big topics of the moment, but also shares how he decides what to cover and when to move on. He has some compelling things to say here about the Supreme Court and about the war in Ukraine, but this is also a glimpse into how a person who commands a good amount of attention manages that attention. This conversation and all other conversations on the keynote track at the 2022 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by BECU, which would like to share the following message. BECU believes that every forward thinker deserves added momentum, so for over 85 years they have offered financial services and support to the community. Members have access to local financial centers, over 30,000 ATMs through the co-op network, and online resources. BECU is a member-owned credit union that puts people over profit. Learn more at BECU.org, federally insured by NCUA. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Ezra Klein, welcome to the Crosscut Festival. Thank you all for having me. Uh, that guy sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> 20 well, years, man. Kidding me. <laughs> How does it feel? Do you feel uh I feel old. Distinguished? I feel old. I feel Yeah. Yeah, I mean you can see the gray here. I've had two kids in the past couple of years. That's made me feel twice as old as I was 3 years ago or 4 years ago. So, right. yeah, no. Uh, the onrushing train of my mortality is completely unignorable. <laughs> so, uh Ezra, I um so I wanted to start the conversation today. I wasn't planning on uh, talking about abortion, but the news this week makes it impossible to ignore. And, you know, the reason I want to bring it up is because um, I, uh, as a listener of your podcast, I recall back in the fall, uh, you had a very um, 
uh, turned out to be personal episode uh, following uh, the uh, when SB8, the Texas law that sidestepped the legal right to abortion by incentivizing vigilante enforcement, um, when the Supreme Court uh, declined to um, to do anything about that, uh, creating kind of a shadow ban right on um, on uh, abortion uh, after six weeks. Um, so now the court looks poised to strip away any federal protection for abortion. And I'm just curious how you've been thinking about what's happening with the court this week. Ooh. So I am pretty reluctant to say anything about it yet because mm. I don't think we know what that leak is. Mm. And I'd prefer to hold my tongue than speak uh, loudly and be felt the fool. That leak could be exactly what it presents itself as. This is what the court has decided. That leak could be the court is moving away from that. And that was leaked to try to stop the move. That was leaked by a conservative justice or clerk or staffer of some sort who is trying to lock in the majority that existed at one point, but has since crumbled because somebody moved and joined a lighter opinion authored by Roberts. And no matter what, I think that you are going to see Roe eviscerated or gutted. I mean, it is a testament to the role Roberts now plays on, on the court and how hard right it's become that if you imagine a world where it turns out this was not the final decision, that this was an unsuccessful attempt to freeze that final decision, to, to freeze that interim decision in place, and it fails, and Roberts comes out with a, a majority opinion that confine, that, that uh, makes abortion illegal after 15 weeks, let's call it, Many people on the left, I don't want to say would celebrate it, but would breathe a sigh of relief for something that just a little while ago would have been a tremendous, tremendous defeat. So I think all the worlds here are tough, um, if you believe in choice, uh, and I do, but I don't think we know which world we're in. Hmm. So you've, you've definitely been thinking about it. And um, I mean, I know that your, you know, your take on the Supreme Court is uh, more of a realist take. I mean, you, you you push back against the mythology of the court as being some, you know, grand, um, you know, uh, entity, um, and it really is in your eyes a, a political entity. So that that is the 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 way that you're looking at this right now, which is which is different from a lot of the reaction that we're seeing out in um, in the world right now. Um, but as you said, you are pro-choice, uh, which was very clear in the um, in the episode of your podcast in the fall. And I wonder, so if we can just kind of maybe move down the road a little bit to the point at which Roe is eviscerated or gutted. Um, and you have this belief and you are an opinion journalist. What is your role as a journalist uh, when when something is done, right? When it is when when that decision is made, when the future that we're moving into is different from the past that we've been in. What, what do you do at that point? Um, because I've never really thought of your work as being advocacy necessarily. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I wonder how you approach that. I mean, my work has different modes. There are times when I have a strong view and I'm trying to persuade you of that view. I think that's more often than not true in my column. The podcast, though, and, and to some degree the column, uh, is more explanatory. I mean, that was the work I did at Vox. It's the work I did at Walk Blog. It's the work in some ways that I feel most comfortable doing. And that takes over when I don't feel I have 
the answer on something, which is frankly, most of the time, it's why I put out more podcasts in a week than I put out columns. And, you know, so I'll, I'll use maybe Russia and Ukraine as the example for, for a moment, which is that's a place where I think my, my team and, and I have, have been able to, to provide some value, I hope, to the audience, not because we were the experts on, on Russia and Ukraine, but because we were thoughtful about identifying angles that could bring frameworks that would help you understand what was going on in Russia and Ukraine. And then on the other side of that ledger, we could help the people who did understand these frameworks, did understand to the extent anyone can, how Vladimir Putin thought or what the various stories and mythologies are that are here or what the sanctions design is or what the energy markets are. We could help them make those frameworks clear. Like we can translate between the people with the knowledge and and, and, and ourselves and, and the audience. Um, if Roe is overturned, is you know, I, I think that's probably the likeliest outcome. I think that'll probably be my role. I don't think I have some answer. I don't think I have some great opinion on abortion that other people don't have. I don't think people have heard to some degree the personal dimensions of my views on this. I don't think it's something I will lean into super hard. I think at that point, there's a lot of explanatory work to be done not just in terms of consequences and who this affects, but but the deep ethical and intellectual and political and philosophical um, substrate of this debate in this country of what it means for the court to be increasingly seen as what it is, which is nine people in robes who dress up that way to attain an aesthetic <laughs> uh, detachment from our world that they don't actually hold. Um, what does it mean to have an institution that powerful with lifetime appointments with so little accountability that nobody anymore believes is somehow different from our political system? It just has a kind of random emanation of our political system, right? Donald Trump got um, four justices named in three years. In, in, uh, I'm sorry, three justices named in four years. That very easily could have turned out differently for him. Um, it has turned out differently for many others. So it's not just undemocratic, but randomly so. So that'll be, I will try to to, to give people lenses to look at the situation through, but I don't, I don't pretend and I don't believe I'm going to be central to, to anyone's way of understanding a pro a post row landscape. Hmm. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to slide over to science fiction right now. Cause one of the things I've been thinking about <laughs> this week, um, an is... easy segue. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, hang with me for a minute. So, um, you know, one of the memes that has been sort of traveling around in, you know, in the, in the last, uh, couple of years, actually, um, is this uh, is really the, the Handmaid's Tale, right? Um, that 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 this is sort of, uh, you know, a, 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 a nonfiction version of Margaret, At Margaret, Margaret Atwood's vision. And you had Margaret Atwood on your your podcast just a, a couple of months ago. I know that you're a fan. Um, and, and I was been thinking about dystopia because I heard, uh, you know, maybe it was a couple of weeks ago and you brought up that we are living in a dystopia, like as sort of an aside. And I'm kind of, and it, it made me think, at what point, Ezra, do you think we slid into dystopia? That's interesting. So I don't know what I said because I don't think we're living in a dystopia. <laughs> I think it was, that would it not was be a bit my side, but uh, people, uh, we science fiction has become focused on dystopia and has has mm. very much lost the muscle of utopia, which is something I spoke about with Atwood. But but I wouldn't say we're living in a dystopia. Um, I will say just from 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 that. I had not read um, The Handmaid's Tale, uh, and I cannot, 
I mean, it was one of those books that I, I'd seen um, representations of and, and seen in other formats. And it, I, I thought I knew it, you know, like there's certain cultural artifacts like that. You're like, yeah, yeah, I, I know, like, you know, Gilead and, and people are forced to bear children and, you know, so on. God, is that book good? Uh, just if you are listening to to me and 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 Mark Blather on here, but you haven't read The Handmaid's Tale, what you should do instead of listening to to, to me or is read the actual book because it is so fresh and so much of it, even uh, apart from the Roe decision and and other elements of of our modernity, so much of what it asks of the reader and the way it tries to understand what it'd be like to lose the lives we lead, we lead um, it. it like it's ringing in my head all the time. This one beautiful line, we thought we had such problems. How are we to know we were happy? I just, I, I cannot stop thinking about it. Uh, so um, that's probably not the answer you're looking for, but everybody should read The Handmaid's Tale if you haven't. Don't, don't think you know it because it's such a potent uh, and ubiquitous cultural artifact. Especially if you've only watched the TV show, which I think the TV show is is good, mm-hmm. but the book is is far superior. And I and I have a heart a soft spot for uh, for dystopian uh, science fiction. So, <laughs> um, okay, let's get let's move back into the realm of uh, of nonfiction. Uh, you talked a little bit about the work that you and your team have been doing on um, the war in Ukraine. Uh, this is a, a really big story for you. Um, you've committed eleven episodes of your podcast and then a good amount of writing to uh, the conflict since uh, uh, late February. Um, that's that's a half a day of, of, of programming alone. And um, I mean, you had uh, former National Security Advisor Fiona Hill on twice in the course of like a month, which which is, you know, which is a lot to have somebody on talking about this conflict. Um, what is it? And, and I, I want to get a little deep into it because I, I really want to understand kind of what you're doing there. And I, um, I hope that everybody who's watching this uh, goes and, and takes in or has taken in the journalism that you've been doing. But, but to start with, what is it about this conflict that made you want to go that deep? What was the conversation that you and your team had that made you decide to go that deep? I had a college professor once, a historian, who this was, you know, a couple years after 9-11, but we were talking about 9-11. And I remember her saying that there are, uh, I've always loved the line, there are moments when you can feel the um, fist of history close around you. And that is one of the things that I felt was true with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that this is a moment that will dent the way the world works. Hmm. And we've done a lot of episodes on, on Russia and Ukraine because we have felt there were a lot of episodes to do. And when I have run, I mean, one thing we're not doing and, and that I, I, I don't want um, people to think as they hear that, we have not been doing weekly or twice weekly updates on how Russia's war in Ukraine is going. We have not covered for the most part the news coming out of of, of Ukraine, which is not because it isn't important, but it's just because others are much better situated to do it than, than, than we have been. We have had on Masha Gessen to talk about what it has been like in Russia during this period and, and how Putin, who, who they've been a biographer of, 
thinks uh, Fionn Hill, who has also written a biography of, of Putin and has been in, in partially in charge of U.S. strategic uh, positioning vis-a-vis Russia, was there for, for that layer of it. Timothy Snyder, who is a historian who specializes actually in Ukraine and the central role it has played in so much of the bloody conflict over the past hundred years. I mean, World War II is very heavily about Ukraine in a way we don't always tell. Um, he was there to talk about the way different histories play into into not just the background of this war, but but also the kind of inevitability history that underlies a lot of American thinking. Anyway, I could keep going down the line on this, you know, Daniel Jurgen on how energy markets work. But the the point is that each every one of these to me was an explanatory lens you could bring. No one of them is sufficient. Not eleven of them together are sufficient. Um, there is no way to understand a conflict like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It is not possible. There's too much in it. Uh, mm-hmm. But every one of these is one more lens that helps you, you know, as if they're different uh, light spectrums. Like you can see something with one of them and then something else with another and something else with another. Now, there are other things in life that deserve a lot of coverage. This is not the first time I've done what I call a cluster, though it is the biggest one I've ever done. But we did a cluster of five or six episodes on climate, um, you know, sort of bunched together back at Vox. I'm working on a cluster right now about the populist right. I, I do like doing group episodes, and I think we're able to add force and value to, to the explanatory work we do. By, by bunching things together. They, they let you sort of walk around the elephant and, and feel the different parts of it. But Russia has been so central to the show in recent months because it was so obvious that there was no one or two conversations that would even begin to outline why this had happened or what effects it was gonna have and, and, and consequences. Um, and while I still don't think we put too much of a dent in that set of questions, I, I do think we were able to to play a role for for the audience that was, you know, I, I think valuable to them and to us. Right, and and you know, I am uh, I'm curious about both of those things because it does feel like the work that you do it serves it serves you, it serves your curiosity mm-hmm. and and want to understand and the audience. So let's start off with you. Well, all of that work that you did, and like you said, it's the largest cluster that, that you've done. What are your takeaways? I know you said you can't distill this down into a couple of bullet points, but what did you learn through this first the, through this cluster that you um, that you didn't understand before? What what uh, assumptions were you disabused of? I'm not sure I have a great answer on this. I can tell you things it has gotten me thinking about. Um, I think it has been easy to ignore the geostrategic dimension of energy in recent years. America's had a huge energy production boom. It's very easy to miss how much of global politics is actually about energy. And if there was a disruption in global politics, how much energy would decide what its aftermath looked like. I've been thinking a lot uh, after some of the episodes we've done on sanctions and the degree to which Europe and and America have been able to influence Russia through that, um, have been able to punish Russia through that, have not been able to go as far on that as maybe they had wanted to because of of oil and gas dependence. I mean, that should definitely make you think about China and Taiwan in a different way. We are so much more intertwined with China. Is it really a credible threat that we would punish them economically. I mean, would we even be able to survive that ourselves? Uh, Certainly, would we be able to sustain that? How much sacrifice are the American people willing to make on behalf of Taiwan being, I think, really the operative 
question there. I've been thinking in a, you know, about what are the models for understanding um, leaders like Putin who behave in ways very contrary to the presumptions and I think somewhat taken for granted like analytical models we use, you know, in America for how uh, for how the, the head of a, a nation might act without falling into the view that he is somehow irrational. That's not really what I think about him. Um, but I, I think we have a very limited view of what uh, of what political rationality looks like. And, and frankly, what human nature is on many of these issues. I've been thinking a lot, I mean, to go to a column I did about liberalism and its critics and the way people outside the liberal circles think about it. So this is not really takeaways because I wouldn't say that what I have is takeaways. I mean, I wouldn't say that what I've come away with is, um, well, I thought Putin was a six on the danger scale and now he's a nine, or right. I thought we had a 1.2% chance of nuclear war in the next five years, but now it's a 2.7. But I do, I think this should somewhat tilt the assumptions anyone brings to the world and the questions you're asking about it. And, and so I think many of those things are, are ringing in my head. I, you know, I think, I guess what I, what I pulled from it, kind of the bit, when I try to think, when I try to explain it to people about what the value really is and, and what I have gotten from it, I always come back to um, that there was this sense of inevitability. Like this, this you, you talk about this Western democracies mm. have a sense of inevitability. Um, it, it is it is what followed, um, you know, the end of history, right? And and sort of like the path that we've been on. And this assumption that um, that there is sort of one lane of thought, um, one one way to exist, and uh, and the assumption that Putin sort of is within that universe of the way that sort of most Western thought exists and the idea that he is operating on a completely different level uh, or, or, or in a completely different, like um, he's playing a different video game, right. Than the rest of us are uh, is really the, the, my takeaway from it is just that there, the world is much more complex than, um, than uh, we have believed for the last 30 years, I think. Um, which is maybe simplistic, right? But um, but that was uh, that was a light bulb for me. Um, I don't think it's easy. I, I think to have lived through. I've been reflecting on this recently. So I grew up my I, I, I grew up in the '90s. I mean, I'm born in the '80s, but you know, my childhood was mostly in the '90s, and that's sort of when I began paying attention to politics. Later in that period, it forms a kind of baseline for me. And I've had this feeling since being in politics, I'm like, wow, man, it, it, it's really like fast, you know, like we, we never seem to get a break. Uh, it keeps feeling like an aberrant era. It's like, you know, 9-11 and, um, you know, then the uh, Afghanistan war and, and, and Iraq war and the financial crisis and the recession and the first black president and a huge like spurt of policymaking almost without uh, precedent in the modern era. Um, you can name a bunch of other things during this period, um, but you know things calm a little bit in the 2012-2014 period. But then the death of um, uh, Antonin, uh, Antonio, uh, sorry, of Justice Scalia, which ends up being unbelievably pivotal in what everything that comes next. Donald Trump, um, the pandemic. I cannot decide. This goes to your thing about dystopia. 
I cannot decide if we live in an era of unusual like velocity of crises or if the aberrant period was the relative stability of like the 80s and 90s and if you go back to journalism about the first half of the 20th century i mean you have multiple world wars you have the spanish flu if you go back to the 50s and 60s and 70s obviously a time of tremendous fracture various civil rights and and women's rights and indigenous rights movements the anti-war movement like maybe it just always is like this particularly in a globalized world where things had started in one place i mean you know about them here what would it have felt like to be in america if um russia had invaded you know during a, a russia ukraine conflict in you know 19 trying to pick a relatively calm moment in history uh but when we didn't have this kind of constant access to it on social media maybe that would feel really differently but but it's been a very you know really really feels like we live in a time of constant crisis but i also can't quite tell if that's in part because the technological like digital global nervous system that we all inhabit now means a crisis anywhere is a crisis everywhere which obviously isn't entirely true. I mean, ask the people of Yemen, the people starving in Afghanistan, but is much more true than it's been in the past. Certainly the ability to make it true when we choose as a polity to care. So, you know, one of the things, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. And I, I, um, I, try to, uh, I, I try to stabilize myself by accepting, you know, what I cannot control. And that's a lot. Um, and there is a lot happening. And one of the things that is a challenge for journalists, um, and, and you know, I face this, you face this, is this churn makes it so difficult to, to, to just keep your focus on one thing for long enough to really understand it. And, um, you know, and uh, Crosscut is a nonprofit, but we still, you know, the money is, is still a thing in our journalism world, just like it is in yours. And there are incentives to move on to the next big thing. Um, how do you decide? And let's take the Ukraine war as an example, because you just focused a lot of energy on it and you've continued to sort of, you know, do journalism around it as it's become, you know, as it's been called for. But if the American public is not interested in the Ukraine war anymore, at what point do you stop talking to them about the Ukraine war? And I'm just curious about how you do this calculation in your mind when you're trying to figure out what it is that you're going to be focusing your journalism on. So I have a couple answers to this and they've been different at different points in my career. So, you know, one gift for me personally of being in the position I'm in at the times compared to the position I held as co-founder in NEIC of Vox, or even as the, the lead of Wonk Blog at the Post, is if I don't do something, I never have the fear that it won't get done. I don't have to be on everything, which is a privilege. Um, there's no, if I never had done a Ukraine-Russia episode, it's not like the New York Times would have had nobody on, on, on Ukraine-Russia. Uh, and nor have I been pivotal to their coverage of it. Uh, I think I've added value in my way, in my corner, but I'm not there on the ground wearing a flak jacket, right? The New York Times has people there risking their lives. Um, well, I get to sit here and, you know, put on a, a nice coat and talk to you. And so the first thing to simply say about that is that I get to choose, which is uh, like a great gift. Um, and so the second thing then to say about it is that I have to choose where I think I can add value. Um, and that is some combination of what I think the audience wants to know about, 
what I think I have a good episode to do about and what I think um, is important. You know, I'm about to, I'm getting ready to tape an episode with something really great, but on, on Hannah Arendt. Like, mm. It's not like a, like the thirsty masses are out there, you know, with a fist in the air demanding a Hannah Arendt episode. But I think it'll do well. Um, I think we have an angle on it that's interesting. I think we've done really good preparation. I think um, the, the person we're going to have on is excellent. And so at this point with the show particularly, but not only, I think with the column too, I built up the credibility that I can make an unexpected pitch to the audience and they'll say, okay, well, we'll see if you're right about this one. Like, well, you know, at least enough of them will come along. Um, I did an episode not long ago with C.T. Nguyen about philosophies of games and the way they apply to life and, and people really loved it. So I'm in a really, really unusual position with the show, with the relationship the show has with its audience, with the trust I can have that I don't need to be like the frontline news coverage of just being able to do work that I think I can do really well. And part of that is, is where I am. At the same time, when I think back on, on my years as a, as a media executive, I guess is the best way to call it, as an editor, as a, as a editorial director, I, I think if I could do it all again, and I thought about this at the time, it's just really hard to resist this pressure. But I, I would have put a lot more of my capital intellectually, organizationally, just in terms of time in deciding our coverage agenda and trying to stick to it against the whims of the news. And I would have from the beginning tried to build a business model that supported that better. Um, I think different models lend themselves to different approaches. And when we launched Vox, it was really the era of like big Facebook traffic, you know, big social media traffic. This was back before the media turned on these models. Um, but, but back then it's like the traffic was like nothing anybody had ever seen. Um, you really got it by like gripping the live wire of the news. So, I mean, we did, I think a lot of great work about trying to like figure out how to turn things. And we built a lot of places where we could do other things. So if you look at Vox, say, Today Explained, I think is both on the news and off of it in a really wonderful way. Explained on Netflix really isn't about news. It's a place where we're able to do a whole other kind of journalism. Um, our YouTube channel, uh, I say ours still, but you know, their YouTube channel now, but I mean, has something has well over 10 million subscribers. So there are places we're able to carve that out, but in the core text journalism, I think in retrospect, I wish I had built more buffer from the news than I was able to do. Um, and it's something I think about now. I think that uh, with social media and the amount we all know and the speed with which we all know it, the pressure on journalists to all kind of be on the same things is too high. And yeah. differentiation is really, really important. And business models that allow for differentiation, like subscription, are really, really important. And, uh, you know, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but um, but this is a place where I think I was a little bit too caught up in the trends of the media business, as opposed to thinking critically at the time about them, which isn't to say we failed or anything, but it is to say that I think there are ways I could have contributed to to building a stronger coverage identity and base from the beginning if I had seen it all a little bit more clearly. Hmm. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a, a moment right now and speak to the audience. So just a reminder that we are going to be doing a Q&A okay. with your questions for Ezra here in about 10 minutes. So make sure to um, get your questions in the chat uh, and, and maybe Ezra will end up uh, answering one of them. Um, 
So, so the ever-shifting news cycle, and you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it just, uh, especially in, during the pandemic, it just feels like any sort of notion of agenda setting by a newsroom is thrown out the window because we're all just chasing the same shiny things, right? Um, but the one thing that has been a constant uh, has been polarization. Um, and of course, you wrote the book on polarization, uh, which came out last year. Um, and I, so I kind of wanted to ask you, you know, the two things that we've, that we've really spoken about kind of in depth here, um, the inv invasion of Ukraine and, um, and the Roe draft decision, you know, when Russians invaded Ukraine, there was a moment where it felt that the country was more united than it had been in a long time. I mean, not entirely, absolutely, but there was sort of like a sense of sort of a unity of, um, of purpose uh, or of feeling. And I'm, I'm curious about whether you felt that was real and, and whether there's, you feel like there's something to build on there. I think it was real and I don't think there's all that much to build on. I mean, I don't think every, I don't think every event in every moment is completely polarized. Uh, China is also a spot of relatively low partisan polarization. Um, Russia invading Ukraine is a spot of relatively low partisan polarization. Not none, but, but, but relatively low. Uh, and those are exceptions more than rules. And I think right. foreign, like foreign policy kinds of events have historically been less divisive in this country, particularly when we are not the, the cause or the main actor in them. So us launching a war is different than there being a war. Uh, and so I think this is kind of, uh, like an, an, an exceptional case, uh, that doesn't change sort of theories of domestic polarization all that much. So is, uh, is depolarization even possible? I mean, you talk about these exceptions and, you know, there, there's the idea that maybe, maybe there's something that could bring us all together, you know, alien invasion or, you know, contrary to don't look up, maybe an asteroid or whatever it is. But is it possible or will things like Roe always interrupt the news cycle and tear us apart again? Things like Roe, in my view, don't interrupt the news cycle and tear us apart. We are torn apart, which leads to things like Roe. I don't want to say that the, it's not multidirectional, because of course it is. Like uh, The whole point of my book, Why We're Polarized, is these are feedback loops and, and dynamic systems. Um, it's a great book, and people should buy it at full price from your local retailer. But I don't think that... Um, there is some near-term hope of depolarization. Uh, it, it's always hard for me to talk about this because I always want to, want to spend 40 minutes defining terms. Like, well, what are we polarized over compared to where things were 10 years ago? We are more polarized over the concept of democracy and elections and somewhat less polarized over economic policy. So is that better or worse? I think in actually in many ways it's quite a bit worse. But, um, but, never, but nevertheless, I think it's true. It doesn't only go in one direction even now. But in terms of, I think, what people mean by this, which is a political system where common feeling and coalition building and compromise are nearer to reach, I don't think there's any near-term hope of that. And my argument is always that I'm not even sure that would be good. Uh, yeah. What I think we need is a political system like you have in most countries that can operate under conditions of polarization, a political system where uh, one side or the other can win elections and govern 
even if the other side has a very different view on how that country should be governed. And I think this would be actively a good thing. Um, my endless argument on this is that our political system should work roughly the way we tell children it works. Like parties should run in elections. The party that wins the most votes should win the election. Not always true. The party that wins the election should be able to implement more or less the agenda they promised. Definitely not usually true. Then that agenda, like the public can decide if they liked it and liked how it went. And then there could be another election and the um, public can decide if they want to give the incumbents power again or, or, or change it out. And then we should start the cycle over again. Democracy should be at its core representative democracy, a way in which the public is able to make choices. Um, they're able to choose an option given to them from among competing options. They should get what they chose and then they should get information from how that plays out that they can then use to, to vote in a way that uh, pursues their interests more fully in the next cycle. The fact that we instead have this system where people run for office, the people get the most votes may or may not win. Um, in fact, both parties might win at the same time and you might have Senator McConnell and you know Majority Leader McConnell and President Obama. Uh, then whoever did win, even if they have a governing trifecta, probably can only pass like 15% of their agenda. <laughs> then they have to go back to the voters who are not congressional reporters and don't understand why their problems are not solved. And then the voters, you know, go in one direction or the other, but even if they, but who they vote for might not, like the whole thing is, it's nuts. And every, at every point, the information that both voters should be getting from how parties govern and that parties should be getting from how voters choose is not flowing through the system in a clear way. That's not polarization's fault, that's institutional design. And while I do not have optimism that we will solve that, unlike polarization, I could give you an agenda to solve it. I could write it down on a piece of paper and, you know, if you were king, you could make it happen. But, you know, you're not, I mean, to my knowledge, you're not king. I am not king. Um, but thank you for that. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, okay. Ezra, this has been a, kind of a dark conversation. Uh, you know, we've been, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't do much for hope. People don't, people don't <laughs> no, but I think that I actually think that it's kind of on, I think it's unfair to you because, uh, because one of the things that I do enjoy about, about your work is that, is that you do, you do a good job, I think, of balancing optimism and skepticism, um, light and dark. I mean, there is, I mean, there is a, a reason, you know, why, I think that you are drawn to science fiction. I mean, you you see you see possibility, right? You you and and, and when I hear you talk about um, you know crypto, right, and what the possibilities are, you can be skeptical about it, but there's also you you kind of try to understand um, what the hopeful side of it is. I mean, even Elon Musk uh, buying Twitter, you try to see the hopeful side of it. And so, for my last question before we turn it over to the viewers. I wanted to, and with apologies to you, I'd like to, um, I'd like to end this. Uh, can you briefly tell me three things that are giving you hope right now? Oh man, I don't love to talk in terms of hope. I'll tell you three things. I, I like to talk in terms of. Um, I will say that whenever this hope question comes up, the thing I always say is that I don't think people take seriously enough how bad the past was. Like even the recent past, uh, I just had Emily St. John Mandel, the novelist on the show, and I, I had her read this beautiful section from Station Eleven, this, this great novel she did five or six years ago, 
that takes place in the aftermath of a pandemic that lit that kills off like 99% of human beings. And she has this famous passage in it. Um, it's just called an incomplete list. And it's about all the things that are gone from baseball games played under floodlights to airplanes, to um, fluorescent pools, to the knowledge that you wouldn't die because you've got a, like a scratch on your toe to um, preserve, to, to, to refrigeration to, you know, and what I was thinking about with that section is that what she's describing is not like the apocalypse. What she's describing is a hundred years ago. It's like within two or three generations of my own mm. family. The idea that you can recognize like what is wrong in the world today, but can't recognize how like like what humanity has for the most part lived through, like the whole time, like up until twenty minutes ago. <laughs> um, I think a pretty grim vision of today should nevertheless not somehow make you think we live in some dystopia. I mean, even take something like Roe, medicalized abortions, like safe medical abortions, which are not going to completely go away even under a post-Roe world. Like they're completely, they're a very, very recent phenomenon as is effective contraception, which is not take away from the horror of that decision if it comes out the way I fear it will come out. But it should take away from the feeling that we are living through something unknown in human history. Hmm. Um, you know, you can now in, in most places, like, you know, you could just like order pills to do an abortion. I don't want to take away, I don't even really want to use that as an example, but but I don't, but this is one thing that I feel like gives me a, a different view on this. I really feel like people don't take seriously that the past was a complete, like by, by any measure of, the, of modernity, like even the recent past was a complete like disaster. And most people I know, even who are quite pessimistic, don't think we're going to go back, you know, more than like 75 years on that. Um, I very rarely hear a, a genuine prediction that things will be as bad, you know, in 25 years as they were in 1950 for most human beings. Uh, and so that should give you some perspective at the very least. And then, you know, something I try to orient towards on the show uh, that I've tried to orient towards my, my politics more. This is actually a Trump era feeling for me, but I, but I think it's true. It's just like recognizing that there's a tremendous amount of beauty um, in the world we live in. And it's a really mistake to uh, take all of your cues about what this age is from politics. Both are going to be missing the true stories. Things don't turn out the way we thought. The triumphalism Democrats had under Obama obviously got dashed real fast. The feeling of upsurge Republicans have right now will only last a couple of years. I mean, these things, you know, go back and forth in very unpredictable ways. But I mean, my God, there's so much beauty. I mean, you know, we can, in this very distinctive way, again, compared to like anybody up till a minute ago, we can at all times be listening, reading, watching like the highest achievements in human arts, literature, and music. And we're all just sitting around doom scrolling on Twitter. I mean, not all of us, but too many of us. So there's some lunacy to that um, and trying to hold, trying to work on that quality of your attention and, and see that, um, you know, deeper story and recognize the freedoms we do have in the moment we have them. Something else from the Emily St. John Mandel um, conversation I've been thinking about, it's probably a longer answer than you were hoping for, but, but I've been thinking about it, is uh, we're all born at a moment. And before that, we can't remember anything. And we all know we're going to die which is a, a personal apocalypse, as she put it, I think. And so I think the past doesn't feel real. And the fact that everything could end always feels real. And I think that's a kind of cognitive distortion that is, is always with us. Um, but things were real before us and things will go on hopefully after us. And that should give you some, and try to take both sides of that equally seriously. Um, 
you know, I think should help you say, well, like, you know, some things are not going as I want them to right now, but, but it's, it's not, not the worst moment in human history. And if we're sitting here, if you're listening to this, you're probably, you know, in some conceptual way, if not your individual situation, you know, probably doing okay. All right. Uh, that was, uh, that was heavier than I thought it was going to be Ezra. <laughs> well, you're the one who asked about it. Great way to end this portion of the conversation though. Um, but, uh, but uh, very interesting. Thank you so much. We'll be back with more after this message. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. So let's open it up um, to the viewers out there. So I've got a few questions for you. There's some good ones here. Uh, This one... um, how can we avoid discouragement as things get worse instead of better? How can progressives, in particular, affect change when conservatives catering to money, evangelism, guns, gerrymandering, and so on generally play dirty and Democrats often play too nice? So I'm going to answer the second question because I think the first question was my ending monologue there. Right. One, I think that it is a mistake to think that Democrats are not affecting change and always play so nicely. And here Republicans are scoring all the wins. I mean, I, I, you should, I hope you listen to my upcoming populist rights series. Certainly the feeling among Republicans and conservatives is that recent decades have been an unending series of losses for them. Like to some degree interrupted by Donald Trump, but not that much. Obviously getting Roe would be a huge victory, but they've been to that, to that end for decades under the feeling of a complete defeat, right? That the Supreme Court made abortion a constitutional right, at least up to a certain point, and there's just nothing they could do about it. So they've played a very, very, very long game, and now it looks like they may be on the verge of success, but they're not going to be on the verge of a proportional success, right? They're not going to, nothing in the leader's decision would make a, like abortion constitutionally illegal or unconstitutional, right? They would just kick it back to the states, which is very bad, but but again, I think it'd be a mistake to, to, to miss that context. Um, you know, in a sort of similar vein, uh, the, the the change, the the transformation in recent years, like just in the last like 15 years, I mean, we have the Affordable Care Act, which we didn't have before. Gay marriage, same-sex marriage is a constitutional right, which it wasn't very, I mean, as recently as 04, as recently as 2008, Barack Obama ran saying he was against gay marriage. Like that is how fast that has changed. Uh, it has its imperfections and inflation is a huge problem for, for politics. But I mean, look at the kind of stimulus that, that Joe Biden was able to pass. Uh, I'm kind of gutted personally, the child tax credit has been allowed to lapse, but that was a huge policy victory in its moment. I don't know what the coming couple of years are going to bring. I don't think they're going to be a, a huge spate of progressive victories, but I'm not sure I believe they're going to be a huge spate of conservative victories for the most part, either, um, you know, except maybe in the courts. And, politics just continues to be a war you know or, or war by other means for that matter uh and 
a lot of things in it are really, really disquieting right now. I mean, if you, I mean, the the simple fact that I don't think we are sure if this country can survive a genuinely contested election, like what would happen, and and all the machinery put in place to make an election genuinely contested, I think should really chill you. I mean, I think the tail risk right now is really is really real. The pandemic we just lived through, you know, and are still living through, is a is a genuine calamity, like something history books will not skip over, like a like a moment you will tell children about um, that will be remembered. But it's just not the case, I think, in American politics that Democrats keep fighting nicely and losing, Republicans keep fighting dirty and winning. And like we all live in the aftermath of that. Um, the other side always looks more ruthless, effective and organized to you than they really are. And I can say with like perfect, like perfect confidence that Republicans think Democrats are fighting dirty, constantly winning, organizing all the cultural and corporate machinery against them. And that like true conservatives have become like a rump group discriminated against in every corner of American life. I think they're wrong too, but it's not that there's nothing to their view. So, um, so it may be worth, if you really want to feel better, go read some, some genuine social conservative writing on what the last 30 years it felt like, and possibly in their laments, you will feel some of your victories. Um, so we're going to do one more question, and I want to turn to media here. And I, you know, uh, and I'm interested in this because I'm just sort of interested in how you view um, cable news. Uh, this person asks, "What do you wish cable news would do differently when they cover the big events and stories like wars or elections or climate?" Um, you know, this is uh, when we talk about setting agendas and newsrooms setting agendas, cable news has incredible power to do this. Um, what do you think they should do with that power? I'm not sure I have a good answer to this. Um, one, I would say those three issues are super different. Wars and elections tend to be round the clock, constant coverage, full agenda, everybody on board, every show, every hour. Climate is the opposite problem. It's slow-moving, catastrophic, um, diffuse. It's hard to get attention focused on it. You don't have like round-the-clock climate coverage. And then the different channels have different issues. Fox News is a very distinctive set of problems. It's not the same problems as CNN, which is different than MSNBC. Um, so I'm not sure I even would think about cable news as an entity. Hmm. I think Fox News is poisonous um, or, you know, reasons you can all guess uh the times had a great series on Tucker carlson recently he's really mainstreaming a, a lot of white nationalist rhetoric through a show um it's very chilling the issues there are very very different than the issues at cnn um right. which has problems from my view but but they're very different problems so i apologize because i know it's the last question i should have a more stirring answer but um well if you make it short I we'll think, be able to get another yeah, one in let's do it <laughs> um this is maybe a more appropriate one where we could end. How do you think the USA's role on the world stage will change in the future, especially in terms of peacekeeping and global leadership? I think this is going to be a really unsettled period of this. I, China is just getting bigger and richer in a way that we are not going to be able to stop. So on the one hand, I think it's going to push a fair amount of pressure onto American leadership because I think people, a lot of the West particularly, is going to want China counterbalanced. I think what has happened in Ukraine is going to force Europe to cohere more into an entity that does real defense spending and tries to balance Russia. And so you're kind of going to have like a Europe 
Russia dynamic and an America-China dynamic. Um, but I also think that the kind of hegemonic American role that we played for a very long time is, is over. Uh, I don't think Americans have the interest in it or the stomach for it. I don't think the world sees us in that way anymore. I think there are too many other like potent players, like very, very powerful players. I think that uh, it, it's really telling. I mean, most countries voted to condemn Russia. They voted for the UN security resolution, but most of the population didn't. If you, if you measure that by countries, I mean, the, you know, China and India and others there have a lot of people in them. So I think that America, I mean, we are going to be much more in a balancing phase in a period of great power competition and, and counter maneuvering. And I don't really think I know how it's going to play out. I did an episode with Fried Zakaria very much on this topic. And I think how we, how we approach it will really matter. I'll only end by saying, I think that how optimistic to some degree you should be about the world has a lot to do with how you think the US-China relationship will evolve. Because if we evolve into antagonists, if competition becomes conflict, that's gonna be truly, truly catastrophic. Um, not just in a direct you know, meeting of the armies kind of way, but in terms of cooperation we need, problems like climate change, pandemics, et cetera. Um, if you believe that that can be managed in a different way and, you know, maybe there's tension and pressure, but it can be fundamentally cooperative, um, and, and positive sum for everybody, like that's a much more optimistic vision of the future. And so how do you do that given also that China has been evolving towards a more authoritarian system, posing a much more concerning set of ideological challenges and questions is like the central foreign policy problem of the coming decades. Hmm. All right. That was a better place to stop. And uh, we are out of time. Ezra, I want to thank you so much for your enlightening answers, your very honest answers, and just uh, spending some time with us to help us think through a lot of really big things that are happening right now. I appreciate it. Sorry to be so depressing, um, but it was great to be here. I really appreciate the conversation. That's, that's a good zone for me. I like that. You know? <laughs> And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Ezra for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krisnovich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to CrossCut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, Members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.